Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show. I am Rupa Subramania. In today's episode, we are honored to have Brendan O'Neill. He's a prominent British journalist and author. Uh, he joins us to discuss his latest book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. In his book, O'Neill fearlessly challenges the prevailing orthodoxies and dominant narratives that have taken over society. With clarity and insight, he examines contemporary beliefs surrounding gender, identity politics, racism, and climate change, questioning the uncritical acceptance and dogmatic nature of these ideas. In his essays, O'Neill advocates for the resurgence of heresy and dissent in our increasingly polarized world. He calls for a return to reason, open debate, and the pursuit of truth, values that he believes are crucial for a thriving society. Join me as we delve into these arguments and ideas presented in his book and explore the importance of challenging prevailing narratives, promoting intellectual diversity and reinvigorating enlightenment thinking in our modern age. Well, welcome to the show, Brendan. Uh, it's a real honor to have you here. And I just absolutely loved reading your book. Um, let me start by asking you, um, you know, your book starts with a provocatively titled chapter, Her Penis, mm. and, uh, and does a brilliant job documenting how this term regularly shows up in news reports, uh, in outlets and publications, especially in the UK. And these are uh, publications across the ideological spectrum, left to right. Um, why does this term, what does her penis really mean? And why does this term matter so much? Well, okay. Well, firstly, thank you for having me on the podcast. Absolute pleasure to be on. Um, thank you for that question. People are lots of people are quite struck by the first chapter because it mm. is quite a confronting chapter, and I wanted it to be a confronting chapter. And the opening sentence in the book is, "We need to talk about her penis." And I, I, I mean, it's it's funny on the one hand, and it's kind of I think it probably makes people laugh, but it also I think drags them headfirst into the questions that I want to raise with my book, which is really about how language is being manipulated in order to manipulate thought. I think that's one of the great and terrifying themes of our times. And I, th one of the points I make in the introduction to the book is that I'm increasingly of the view that the term cancel culture is not sufficient to describe the era that we're living in. I understand the attraction of the term cancel culture. It's short, it's alliterative, it makes sense. Many, many people understand what you're talking about when you say cancel culture. So I get it and I use it. But I think we have to look beyond that and understand that we're living through a period of counter enlightenment, a period of extraordinary intolerance, a period of new forms of authoritarianism, which I think are designed to alter not just what people say, but how they think in their minds and how they relate to other human beings. So the reason I opened with that chapter, her penis, is just to get, to use that, that, that two word phrase as an example of how everyday language is changing around us, sometimes imperceptibly, sometimes without us really noticing. You wake up one day and suddenly her penis is an acceptable phrase that people are using in the media, in courts of law, in the political sphere. We have uh, the leader of the Labour Party here in Britain, Keir Starmer, keeps getting into trouble because he can't answer the question, what is a woman? And his most recent answer, he said, look, 99% of women don't have a penis which opens the possibility that around 1% do have a penis. And so the whole, the way in which ideas that we took to be true and scientifically provable and useful for understanding ourselves and other people, 
the way in which they can be overhauled so in such a slippery way and without any protest or really without very much discussion. I find that worrying and I think it suggests we live under a new kind of cultural authoritarianism which values people's subjective views of themselves over objective reality. And that's something I think we need to question and push back against. So why does it feel like, uh, just sticking to that first chapter, uh, I was struck by the fact that pretty much everybody across the political and ideological spectrum seemed to be on board with the use of pronouns and gender ideology um, in general. What, what is going on there? Did, did some kind of a consensus emerge that, uh, that, that, we're not, that we're not aware of? I mean, and how do we explain this consensus? Yeah, it's really striking. The, yeah. the the speed, I think, historically speaking, the speed with which it became elite consensus opinion that you can change sex. And mm-hmm. in fact, going even further than that, the idea that there is such a thing as a gendered soul, which might not match up with your biological casing, I consider that to be a pretty religious idea, a quite superstitious idea. It's not something that I believe to be true. I think it's an idea that is born from um, the narcissistic needs of a small group of people, which then gets embraced by the establishment as a politically correct value, an idea that you all must bow down before. But I don't accept the idea of a gendered soul. I don't accept the idea that um, there are men out there who are really female, they have a female brain or a female soul. I think that's quite a misogynistic idea. There's more to being a woman than feeling. There's more to being a woman than just desiring to be one in your mind. And I don't accept the idea that young women who are the growing number of people undergoing hormonal intervention and sometimes surgical intervention, uh, growing numbers of them are young women. Very often they're young lesbians. I'm deeply disturbed by the fact that we now live in a society in which a young lesbian can be subjected to hormonal interventions to correct her to make her the correct Mm -hmm. sex, as if there's something wrong with being an 18-year-old girl who is attracted to other girls. Um, You know, really, she must be a man. Let's let's change her. And and one of the points I make later on in the book, I talk about the case of Alan Turing, the great computer Mm -hmm. expert, science hero of uh, the Second World War and uh, the mid-20th century here in England. Um, He was, of course, famously arrested for homosexual behavior, Um, He was given a choice. He could either go to prison um, or he could undergo hormonal treatment, which was really a form of um, hormonal castration. So he was given estrogen, which gave him breast material. It It made his voice more high pitched. It made him very, very depressed. He didn't want these changes to take place. It basically feminized him as a way of neutering what was seen as his sinful homosexuality. Now, we look upon that with absolute horror today. And um, Britain is often trying to make amends for its grotesque treatment of Alan Turing. We just we recently put him on the £50 note here, which mm-hmm. is a great honour in this country, basically as a way of apologising for what we did to him. And yet we now do the same thing to young people in the 21st century. We do the exact same thing. We give young men hormonal interventions that give them the appearance of having breasts, which make their voices high-pitched, which make them the supposed correct sex which give them the same sexual problems that Turin suffered as a consequence of his estrogen treatment. But we call it transgenderism. We call it um, gender-affirming healthcare. Mm. We give it all these euphemistic names, which I think is really quite Orwellian and is a bit of a disguise for something that's actually quite problematic. So um, the fact that all of these things are kind of nodded along by so many different sections of the political establishment, I think that speaks to the absence of critical thinking, um, it speaks to a culture of conformism. So few Mm. people are willing to deviate from elite consensus opinion, especially if you're in the elites and you want to stay in the elites, you want to move in those circles, you want to um, have those opportunities, make those advancements. You can't break away from elite consensus opinion in that uh, in that situation. So it, it reinforces itself all the time through the mm-hmm. necessity of maintaining the elite group itself. Yeah. And they so they speak in their own language, they have their own special linguistic cues, they they say, my name is so and so my pronouns are such and such, they have these rituals that you have to perform in order to be a member of that class. And 
the fact that that performance is a continual demand of people within that uh, uh, strata of society means that it is constantly being reinforced and then it goes reinforced through education through the university system through popular culture through social media and it has this drip drip effect into the young generation in particular so yes there's a real culture of conformism and one of the reasons i wrote my book and called it a heretics manifesto is precisely because i think we need some more heretical kickback against ideas that have bizarrely become quite conformistly accepted yeah, you know, you. Um, I found this um, sentence very striking in that first chapter. You say that uh, herpenis uh, is a term that even rape victims might have to utter at some point. Um, you know, it really. You know, when you when you put it that way, it's really quite jarring. It really puts it into context. How do you believe? How, how do you think that this impacts uh, social cohesion, for example? I think it's. I think it's having a devastating impact, even though if we can't quite appreciate that yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm lucky enough to live on Turf Island. Britain is often referred to as Turf Island, especially by some American activists. They can't believe we have so many trans exclusionary radical feminists here, which basically means women who don't accept the idea that a man can become a woman. J.K. Rowling is at the top and there are many, many others. Um, I'm really happy to live on Turf Island. I'm happy to live on an island where there are so many women who are speaking out and standing up for their sex-based rights um, and um, taking action to defend their spaces and their freedoms. I think that's a really positive thing. Mm. But I think in relation to um, the, the question of how we got to a situation where lots of other sections of society, including law and the police, now accept a term like her penis, mm. I mean, that is really the question of our age. How do these things happen? So, for example, the police, there was a freedom of information request to police forces here in the UK asking them if they record crimes as having been committed by a man or a woman, depending on their sex or on how they identify. And many police forces said they record crimes as uh, by the preferred gender of mm. the alleged criminal rather than by his or her biological sex and some police forces even do that with rape so rape is defined in english law as the non-consensual insertion of a man's penis into various parts of a woman's body that's how it's defined in law and yet the police have taken it upon themselves to accept the idea that the male rapist standing before them is a woman if he says he's a woman and what you end up with is something really creepy i think something straight out of 1984 you know one of winston smith's jobs in the ministry of truth was to mm. rewrite old newspaper articles yep. to make them conform with the ideology of the of the current ruling party that's what's happening now so we have news articles here in britain and i've seen them around the world as well where they will say woman arrested for rape of a minor and it's just not true that's a mm. lie that that headline is a lie much of the article itself is a lie it wasn't a woman, it was a man. And one of the examples I give in the book is of uh, a story that was in the New York Times, which said 80, and it was on the BBC as well, BBC News, 83-year-old woman arrested for murdering and decapitating a woman in her 60s. And I saw this headline and I thought, hold on, 83-year-old women don't do that. Mm. I can't think of any instance in my lifetime where an 83-year-old woman has murdered another woman and decapitated her. 83-year-old women tend to be quite small, quite frail, certainly not murderously inclined. Of course, it wasn't an 83-year-old woman. It was an 83-year-old man who had murdered women before. So the New York Times was lying to us. The mm. BBC was lying to us. You had to get to the very last line of the BBC article to find out that this is a transgender woman, i.e. Mm. a man. So they're lying to us. And and um, one of the consequences, there are numerous problematic consequences there. Firstly, if the media doesn't tell us the truth about something as serious as, as an act of rape or an act of murder, why should we trust them to tell the truth about anything? Um, and when the media elevates ideological needs over objective recording of facts, that calls into question the entire pursuit of truth and whether the pursuit of truth is even possible in an era in which subjective delusions now count for more than objective reality. But then one of the bigger problems, as, as you've alluded to, is that we end up in a situation where rape victims feel pressured to refer to their rapists as female. 
And one of the points I made in my book is, firstly, they rape you, then they get your pronouns. And um, if you think about that, the impact of that New York Times article on the women that that man had harassed and assaulted and killed over numerous decades, it was it, it was depriving them of the right to tell their story. Their story is that they were attacked by a man. They were brutalized by a man. That's not only their truth, it is the truth. And they were being subtly deprived of that by a supposed newspaper of record, which took it upon itself that um, to say that the, the rapist and the murderer's truth is more important than their truth. Mm-hmm. And that is a judgment that I think goes against not only reason and objectivity, but against human decency. Yeah. And so when you have a situation where political correctness is overriding human decency itself, I think we're really reaching a a, 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 a sad situation. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, one of the key themes uh, in your book um, is the importance of free speech and your concerns about the rise of compelled speech. Uh, Here in Canada, there are several uh, instances, uh, you know, where free speech has been suppressed and the chilling effects uh, cancel culture, um, um, for lack of a better term, I agree with you. It sounds rather benign. I agree with your criticism of the term. I think we need something, something else that captures the, you know, uh, you know, the uh, captures the importance of what's going on. Um, the chilling effects cancel culture has had on free speech. I've interviewed like a 17-year-old high school student here in Canada who was recently suspended from his Catholic high school for protesting against gender ideology. Uh, Compelled speech and all of this is clearly very, very problematic. Um, And you, and you, you know, and you say the the free speech is important and the right to offend is also very important. But in a world of unfettered uh, uh, free speech, does something such as hate speech exist? Um, I think I have a real problem with the term hate speech. Mm. Um, I've always felt uncomfortable with the idea of hate speech. Um, I mean, obviously there is racist speech, there is misogynistic speech, there is anti-Semitic speech, um, there's Holocaust denial, there is white supremacist speech. I mean, no one denies that those forms of speech exist. They're on the internet. People can see them. Um, I'm such a free speech absolutist that I think even that kind of speech should be free. It should not be interfered with by the state because I think there's a benefit from knowing that that kind of speech exists because it allows us to see what these hateful individuals and hateful groups are saying, what they're thinking, where they are, where they need to be challenged, where they need to be confronted. I think there's a real danger, even when we're talking about genuinely racist speech, there's a danger that suppressing it will actually allow it to fester and grow Mm. in new communities online, hidden from from, um, reasoned society. A a really good example of that is France. France outlawed Holocaust denial 25 years ago, maybe 30 years ago, a long time ago. Now France has a very serious problem with anti-Semitism and with anti-Semitic speech, a very serious problem, arguably the most serious problem in in Western Europe, if not the whole of Europe. Mm. Um, And I think that's partly a consequence of the censorship. Um, not entirely, of course. There are numerous social um, and cultural issues in France that mean that um, all sorts of regressive views take hold in certain sections of society. Um, but one issue is the censorship. So this this stuff has to go underground. The Holocaust deniers have to hide away, right. make their own websites and so on, and make their own little networks. And therefore, it's difficult to call them out or to highlight them and, and to challenge them. So even genuinely hateful speech I don't think should be censored but I think the problem I have with the term hate speech is that so much stuff gets collapsed under that term yeah so it's not just the racism and the anti-semitism and the misogyny and and whatever it's also um JK Rowling writing Mm a brilliant long considered essay about women's rights that is now transphobia that is a form of hate speech apparently or it's um people who criticize mass immigration and who say that there needs to be some form of controls on immigration. Now, as it happens, I'm I'm quite liberal on immigration, which, which gets me into all sorts of trouble with some of my allies on other issues. But there you go, that's life. Um, but there are many people who are critical of mass immigration and um, they get called racist. That's the xenophobia. 
And even, you know, just to take the example of Brexit here in the UK, I think Brexit was a very important working class revolt against the technocratic elites, against the newest, the new elites. And um, we're the people who voted for it, which includes me, we're called Europhobic, we're called xenophobic, we voted out of um, a place of hatred. So all sorts of things, even genuinely held perfectly legitimate political views are mm. now redefined as hate speech. And one of the points I make in, in the chapter in my book on hate speech um, yeah. is that I think one of the issues with this branding of certain views, one of the paradoxes that I talk about is that we live in societies that are absolutely obsessed with controlling and suppressing hateful speech. And yet public life feels more hateful than ever. It's such an interesting paradox to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, hatred is the lingua franca of social media. You know, when they have the Twitter mobs and they are mm -hmm. the things they say about um, gender critical feminists or about black members of the Conservative Party or about someone like Priti Patel, who was our Indian heritage um, home secretary here for a few years. They say the most obscene things. Woke people say it. People who mm. have words like love is love in their Twitter bios and the, the pride flag and of course their pronouns people who in every other situation would say they are against hatred or if you look at university campuses they yeah. are awash with speech codes mm -hmm. controlling hate speech and yet if a pro-Israel person turns turns up or a gender critical feminist turns up they there will be orgies of hatred they will smash windows mm -hmm. the students they will scream uh, abuse yep. so one of the points I make is that I'm worried that the empire of hate censorship that we all live under now, where we all live under states that want to control supposedly hateful speech, actually green lights hatred. Because what it does, it hangs a sign around people's necks, which says that this person is a hateful person, a bad person, they are destructive to social life. Mm. Whether it's a gender critical feminist or a, someone on the right or a Canadian trucker or a Danish trucker or a Dutch farmer, anyone who deviates in any way from the consensus they are hateful people and therefore you may hate them yeah. in fact you must hate them because unless mm. we cleanse society of their um dangerous ideas we're we're all in big trouble yeah. so i think that's the paradox of hatred it 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 presents itself as an attempt to control hatred in society but it actually gives us a license to loathe certain groups and certain people and it exacerbates hateful discussion in contemporary life yeah. Um, in, in this chapter, um, the, the love that dare not speak its name, um, you refer to a, ther a therapeutic turn in society from one uh, of liberation to a more managerial, technocratic uh, society in which our individual individuality has been diminished. Um, I found this very striking. It was possibly one of the most interesting things that I you know, saw in the book. What do you mean by this? And can you elaborate? Yeah, so um, yeah, that chapter is specifically on um, the rise of woke homophobia. Exactly. And so yeah, the yeah. way in which um, I guess the argument I'm making in that chapter is that all the progressive ideals that we sometimes take for granted, I'm using the word progressive in the English sense, which means something good. Mm -hmm. I know it has different meanings in different exactly. parts of the world. Yeah. Uh, but the progressive ideals that we take for granted can easily fall away if we're, if we're not vigilant and if we don't defend the freedom to, to think and to speak and to defend those ideals. Mm -hmm. So I think what's happening with um, the, the trans ideology and its impact on young gay people in particular, I find incredibly, incredibly worrying. Um, but one of the points I make in that chapter in, in, in talking about that issue, as you say, is that... Um, I think one of the big differences, I think one interesting thing about woke activists and the woke elites is that they see themselves as the heirs to the progressives of the 1950s and the 1960s. They see themselves as the heirs to the civil rights movement in the United States or the gay liberation movement across the Western world, or, the, or of course the feminist movement, the second wave feminism in the 60s and the 70s. They see themselves as the heirs to that. And my argument is that actually they are the opponents of that they are uh, they are a, um a blot on those progressive leaps forward in human history and that's why i get very frustrated when people say that anyone who criticizes wokeness or political correctness just wants to turn the clock back to a time when women were in the kitchen and mm -hmm. um black people and white people were segregated and gay people didn't have normal lives for me it's the entire opposite 
it's it's the fact that those breakthroughs were made in the Western world and were very positive that I am now concerned about this movement and this ideology that I think is threatening them. And so I think generally speaking, what's happened is we've gone from a culture of liberation, a culture, uh, we've gone from movements that wanted to free themselves from state intervention, state control, the judgments of the moral majority, as it was referred to, who basically argued for autonomy, for the right to live freely and for the right to make their own choices. So that was the women's movement, uh, the gay liberation movement, yeah. uh, the civil rights movement, you know, basically leave us alone. Um, Frederick Douglass, um, going back to the 1800s, he was the uh, slave turned abolitionist. He was once asked, what can the white man do to help uh, freed slaves? And he he basically said, just leave us alone. Just let us get on with it. Yeah. Some of us will fail. Some of us will succeed. But just give us the freedom to try. Yeah. So that was the kind of culture that we had in, in these progressive movements over the past 60, 70, 80, 100 years. Mm-hmm. I think what we have now in the woke movement is the precise opposite. We have a movement that is very authoritarian, that is um, constantly seeking validation from the state rather than freedom from the state, which wants everyone to respect it, to respect its pronouns, to bow down, to genuflect to its ideologies. And if you don't, you're in big trouble. They will cancel you. They will no platform you. So it's the polar opposite of the culture of liberation. What we live under now is a managerial regime in which we are all expected to submit to the expertise of lifestyle gurus, um, the -hmm. welfare state, um, other social actors who presume to know better than we do ourselves, how we should run our lives, how we should live, how we should raise our children, um, how we should speak, how we should think. So the, the drift from a culture of leave us alone and let us live freely to a culture to a, a culture in which people don't trust themselves to be free mm-hmm. and instead call on the authorities to um, recognize them and look after them and tell us exactly how to raise a child in the first six months and exactly how we should speak to a person of the of a different race in the workplace and exactly how we must um make ourselves felt and and what words we should use there's this desire to be told all the time how to behave and what to do yeah I think that's so worrying and I long for that older era in which people said look we're capable of running our lives let us do it so but how did we get to this point how did we get from this liberating force that gave us women's rights gay rights um, to this present morass of a, you know, some bewildering confusion of gender and sexual identities. Uh, how do we get to this point? That's, that's the question that I, that I'm often, you know, I, I often ask, I don't, I don't really have the answer to it. Yeah, it's a, it's such an interesting question. And there are so many different cultural factors and changes in society that I think mm. contribute to that. One idea I've had, which is difficult to articulate, and I'm not even sure if I'm right, is that um, I think there's a there's a power. It's a paradoxical situation where some of these liberatory movements, which I think were very positive, possibly contained the seed of their own demise and possibly contained the seed of the culture that we currently live under. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth Lash Quinn wrote a brilliant book about race experts maybe 20 years ago. Um, And she just looked at how the civil rights movement itself, which she is entirely in favor of, and the heroic Martin Luther King, of course, she said that it it gave rise over time to an academic culture of not um, liberation from segregation and oppression, but racial management, management of the relations between the races, a need to control how black people and white people interact and of course that now has exploded into the most poisonous racial uh, racial culture in workplaces and so on where you have people like Robin DiAngelo uh, the queen of white fragility uh, and her book being used in workplaces across the western world to basically reprimand white workers divide them from black workers um, enforce these new forms of uh, racial workplace management, I would say. It's very beneficial to the boss class. That's one of the most striking things about identity politics. So th- there are some people, and I think the um, 
if you look at the gay liberation movement, for example, I think the way in which it went through various different phases, I think the AIDS crisis played an enormous role in weakening its desire for autonomy and giving rise to this um, desire for medical protection, uh, for bringing homosexuality back under the purview of the medical elites, which it had only just liberated itself from. So there's that factor as well. But I think generally, if we're looking at the different cultures, I think the rise of a therapeutic culture, Mm. which emphasizes people's weakness rather than their strengths, emphasizes their their inability, incapacity rather than their capacity. Also a changing political culture, especially on the left, moving away from, from one that believed in individual sovereignty and freedom to one that believed that uh, the structures of the welfare state must play a, a, a more uh, a, a more important role in how people run their lives, and then um, on top of those two, a general culture of a general downbeat culture in the West, post particularly post Cold War, when the life seems to be sucked out of Western politics, that it, it, it mm-hmm. starts to lose its dynamism. However phony that dynamism might have been yeah. in the Cold War era, there was at least some sense that the west was the free world and the east was the unfree world so there was an there was an an element of dynamism and confidence in the west and then even that gets drained away so i think the the rise of the therapeutic culture the shift of the left in particular and and that includes much of the professional managerial elites away from believing in free sovereignty and freedom towards believing in social control and a general culture of misanthropy and mistrust across the West. I think they all played an important role Mm. in dragging us, I think, over three or four decades from a period in which we expected to be free into this new period and we expect that we will be controlled. Yeah. Um, You have a chapter uh, on Islamo-censorship where any criticism of uh, Islam is canceled and uh, and uh, termed as racist, Islamophobic, a term that I hadn't heard of, hijabophobia, where mm. criticism of uh, the hijab is uh, seen as hijabophobic. Um, you know, how did we get to this situation where Islam uh, essentially has this cordon uh, sanitaire erect, erected around it uh, by the thought police, but it's certainly not the case when it comes to uh, Christianity, for example, or Hinduism, where uh, regressive practices and uh, fundamentalists uh, are routinely called out by the same progressive elite who now bend over backwards to shield Islam from a similar legitimate criticism. It's just extraordinary. The yeah. I find the culture of censorship around Islam to be so terrifying and chilling yeah. and really problematic for, I think, social stability. Mm-hmm. I think it has a profound impact on society that I think lots of people don't appreciate. I mean, the point I make in that chapter is, is that it's just extraordinary that in the UK, for example, um, we had the fatwa against Salman Rushdie in um, the late 1980s, uh, issued by Iran, of course, but supported by significant sections of the Muslim community in Britain. Um, Salman Rushdie is a British citizen, not born in Britain, but he's a British citizen. He's also a knight of the realm here. He's a sir. So he is very important to this country. Um, and there was a, a a willingness among some sections of the cultural elite to protect him. Others kind of slightly abandoned him and said, well, if he hadn't been so mean about Islam, he wouldn't be facing these problems. There was a a culture of cowardice as well. But at the same time that Iran was issuing this death threat, this death warrant against a man for being rude about Islam, the British civil society itself was coming up with new rules and regulations to prevent people from being rude about Islam. It's such an extraordinary moment in cultural history where one of the most famous authors of our time is laboring under a death warrant uh, while civil society is inventing the idea of Islamophobia or at Mm. least pushing it further and further. So the Runnymede Trust, the Runnymede Trust is an anti-racist charity here in Britain. It really came up with the contemporary definition of Islamophobia in the mid 1990s. So we're talking four or five years after the fatwa. Um, and it defined Islamophobia as hostility to Islam. Mm. And, and it very clearly makes the case that it's not just racist abuse aimed at people from the Muslim community. I, I don't know anyone who would disagree that racist abuse against uh, brown Muslims, as most of them in, in Britain are. I don't know anyone who would disagree that that's a terrible thing and society has a responsibility to keep it in check. 
Um, but it was talking about hostility to Islam. It was talking about even terms like Islamic fundamentalism, uh, it says is an unacceptable term because it's offensive to Muslims to tie the word Islamic to the word fundamentalism or the word terrorism. Uh, the Muslim Council of Britain, which is a an organization here, has taken this idea even further. And um, it recently criticized the Daily Mail um, because it interviewed one of the Yazidi women who had been enslaved and raped by ISIS. And she said during the interview that um, the people who were uh, oppressing her and, and raping her, they thought it was sanctioned by Islam. Mm. And the Daily Mail quoted her words. And the Muslim Council of Britain rebuked the Daily Mail, saying it's unacceptable to suggest that ISIS is driven by Islamic ideas, even though these were the beliefs and the words of a woman who had ex experienced the most extraordinary horrors. I just found that staggering and extraordinary. And um, the police here in Britain, the counter-terrorist police in, in, in London, have openly discussed, they haven't done it yet, but they've openly discussed moving away from terms like Islamic, Islamic terrorism or Islamist terrorism to using phrases like faith claimed terrorism. Oh. And they're, they're talking about not using the word jihadi and instead using the word terrorist or something. Um, so, and if you look at their discussions, what's very interesting is they openly say changing the language in this way could be a way of improving community relations. So again, you have the manipulation of language to manipulate how people think. And the truth of the matter is the vast majority of terror attacks in Europe over the past 10 years have been Islamist terror attacks. Hundreds of people have been killed in Europe, hundreds, including 21 at the Manchester Arena here in Britain, yep. one of the worst terror attacks um, of all time in this country. I was at a Morrissey concert earlier this year, and it was really interesting because um, obviously Morrissey's from Manchester, and he said to the audience, um, you, all the, you all know the name Myra Hindley, but none of you know the name of the man who blew up the Manchester Arena. Uh, she killed whatever six kids he killed 21 so why don't you know his name the audience just went quiet wow. um, but I thought it was a very good question and I think there is this culture of amnesia mm -hmm. around Islamist terrorism we're encouraged to forget we're encouraged to move on we all sang the Oasis song don't look back in anger after mm -hmm. the um, Manchester arena bombing which summed up our attitude to these atrocities and more broadly, there is this culture of, there's this rather racially paternalistic culture coming from the woke left and from the elites, which says um, Muslims need to be protected from offensive speech and rigorous discussion about their religion, and therefore we're going to censor it. And everyone loses out as a consequence of that. We lose out our freedom of speech, our freedom to criticize one of the great world religions, and the Muslim community is effectively reduced to a second class community mm. who require special measures to protect unlike any other community they require special measures to protect them from ideas that they might find difficult or challenging and that infantilizes them so it of infantilizes course. public yeah. discussion and it infantilizes muslims so i find it a curiously racist idea and one that of course is a grave assault on freedom of speech yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, you also advocate for uh, intellectual uh, courage and the willingness to challenge uh, prevailing orthodoxies. How do you suggest that people do this? Uh, you know, one of the things that I encounter uh, very frequently is that people are just, pe people, people will agree, people will privately agree with you, but they're very, very afraid to come out publicly and take a position or come on the record. Um, because they have genuine concerns. They might lose their job. Their uh, kids might get suspended from school and so on and so forth. The list goes on. How, how do, you know, how do you suggest people develop these qualities in a, in a society that is increasingly very discouraging of dissent? It's such a good question. And it's a difficult one to answer because mm. I often say, you know, we have to have the courage of our convictions and say what we believe and so on. Um, that, and but that's quite easy for me to say because it's my job to do that and yeah. um that's what I do for a living so I'm I mean I guess I'm in a privileged position to use um contemporary language um I know it's more difficult for other people I know that there are women I get emails very often from women in particular if I say something on tv or radio that is 
uh, gender critical. I get email from women saying, I wish I could say this. I'm glad I can't say it. I'm glad you're saying it. Um, and there are other issues as well on which people feel that they can't speak out because there is a stifling culture. And, and I think one of the one of the grimmest impacts of cancel culture is um, is not, you know, people will often say, well, look at J.K. Rowling, she's still speaking, or look at Kathleen Stock, the um, British professor of philosophy who has got into a lot of hot water for her gender critical views. Mm -hmm. They will say, look at Kathleen Stock, she speaks at Oxford, she writes art newspaper articles. I think that's missing the point. The point of cancel culture is the chilling effect it has across society. It's the message it sends to people who have less power than JK Rowling, who have less money than some people, who have less job security, who know what will happen to them if they speak out. They know they will suffer enormously. So it's very difficult. But I but even having said that, I do think it some the people who can speak out must speak out. Mm -hmm. And I think they're the ones I'm most I'm least forgiving of are those people who are in the media, who do have a platform, who are fairly comfortable, who are not likely to get sacked because of the position they're in, when they don't speak out on certain issues, um, on the encroachment of wokeness into reason and truth and freedom, when they don't speak out, I find that incredibly worrying and disappointing. And I give an example in the last chapter of the book, I give, an ex I give a few examples from history, in fact, of people who spoke out in circumstances which were far more difficult than ours. Mm. So I tell the story of William Tyndale, for example, who is one of my heroes. He was um, a, a quite zealous Protestant reformer in the in England in the early 1500s. And um, he translated the Bible into English, which was an offense punishable by death. If you, tr if you published the Bible in English, it, it was only supposed to be in Latin because only our moral superiors were allowed to read it. And the rest of us had to just nod along to whatever they decided to read to us in church on a, on a Sunday. Mm. Um, if you publish the Bible in English, you were burnt at the stake. And he thought, no, I have to do it. He, he went to Germany to do it. You couldn't do it in England. He smuggled his Bibles back into England. Um, his, his supporters would read the Bibles by candlelight and be ready to throw them away if anyone knocked at the door. I mean, that's the risk they were taking to, mm. to exercise their freedom of conscience and their freedom to read. Um, and eventually the authorities caught up with him. He was hunted as an outlaw across Germany. They caught up with him. They imprisoned him. They found him guilty of heresy. Uh, they strangled him to death and then they burnt him at the stake. And you just think to yourself, what drove him to keep doing this? What drove him to keep publishing his Bibles, keep translating the Bible. He also invented the pocket Bible so that people would have a smaller version of it that they could hide away. Um, what made him do this? And you just think it's because he was so convinced of his right to read the Bible. And he was so convinced of ordinary people's ability to understand things for themselves, which at the time was a completely revolutionary idea and arguably it's become revolutionary again under the woke tyranny that tends to treat ordinary people as idiots who need to be protected from offensive ideas it was a revolutionary idea and one that he was willing to give his life for and i just think those examples from history are really instructive and which is why i tell some of them in the book um instructive for those of us who want to put our heads above the parapet and who think that the risk is worth it because what we're talking about here is defending truth, reason, scientific reason, objectivity, equality, freedom, tolerance, freedom of speech. These are values worth risking your reputation for and mm. worth risking your jobs for. Thankfully, we don't have to risk our lives for them anymore because people in the past did that for us. And I think it's worth feeling inspired by the heretics of history as we go forward and do do a bit of heresy today. Yeah, I think one of the unfortunate consequences of this therapeutic turn in society where, you know, as you say, uh, the importance of the individual has been diminished. You're uh, meant to believe that you're weak and uh, and you need help and that sort of thing is that we have become rather weak compared to people who came before us who've had to fight these extraordinary uh, fights uh, at great risk to their lives. Um, and, um, you know, uh, but you're, I, I don't know if you agree with me, but I feel like um, the West in particular, um, you know, we're become a bunch of weaklings, <laughs> uh, you know, um, 
uh, I'm sure there are a few of us who are speaking out and a few of us who uh, stick our necks, necks out there and we we take uh, these positions. But I, I, I sometimes I feel like the vast majority of people uh, surrounding uh, the few are just weak and they're always afraid. And how, you know, why have we become so afraid? It's interesting, isn't it? I do agree yeah. with you about that. Um, there is a culture of passivity and um, self-doubt, um, not the good kind of self-doubt where you kind of question yourself and your ideas all the time, but the bad kind, which doubts one's own capacity even to act in the world without mm. the scaffolding of therapeutic intervention and social advice and um, lifestyle advice. Yeah, there is a, there's a real culture of... Um, people thinking that they need experts to hold their hands all the time. Mm. And that's one of the great crimes of censorship. I think the great crime of censorship is it, it, the worst thing about censorship is not even that it stops someone from speaking, which is terrible, but that it stops the rest of us from making up our own minds. That is censorship's greatest crime is to, yeah. um, is to say to us, you don't have to think for yourself because we've done it for you. We've decided on your behalf that this idea is too dangerous. This book is too, will trigger you too much. This film is too obscene. So we've made the decision. So you don't have to use your moral muscles. Mm. You don't have to use your mental muscles. You can just sit, you can just stew in your own ignorance and be very comfortable there. And over time that weakens our moral muscles and they, they get weak through underuse. And in fact, that's an argument that's been made throughout history. John Milton made it in England in the 1600s. Um, John Stuart Mill made this argument in the 1800s in his book on liberty. Both of them and others as well made the argument that it's only through exercising moral judgment and making decisions for ourselves that we become free, active members of society. And when you're no longer called upon to do that, when you're no longer called upon to make your own mind up about ideas or to make your own judgments about how to run your life or how to raise your family because someone else is doing it for you then in john stuart mill's words our only responsibility is to become ape-like imitators we are ape-like imitators of people who have told us what to do and what to think and yeah. i think there's a culture of that now it's a culture of we will imitate the advice of our superiors and then it's it's uh, exacerbated by the therapeutic culture which makes it even worse because that entices us all the time into a relationship of dependency with medical experts therapeutic experts lifestyle experts who apparently have the key to everything um so it's it's kind of depressing uh, I, th I do think there's a class differential which is very important i think I kind of straddle two worlds i, I come from a working class community in london an irish community um, all my family do normal working class jobs. They don't do anything like what I do. Um, and so that, that is a very useful thing. It keeps me quite grounded. And none of them buy into any of this at all. They are incredibly robust. They do hard jobs, difficult jobs. So you, you have to be robust. Uh, but they're also robust in their relationships and in the, how they think and and mm -hmm. and um, with each other, with their children. They're firm. They they you know that don't be a wimp you'll hear that you would never hear that phrase in a school these days it would be considered very offensive to say to a child don't be a wimp don't be a telltale mm -hmm. don't be a snitch sort it out yourself that's what they used to say to us at school uh but they don't anymore but i hear that in working class communities there's a desire for chil for children and young people to be resilient but then in other sections of society including those who have the most influence over culture um, it's a, it's very different. They want to encourage the young to feel frail, to worry that their self-esteem is going to be damaged all the time, to, mm. to try and cushion themselves from um, difficult ideas. So I think that class differential is in, important to understand in terms of thinking about how this might play out um, over time, how it might play out. But I do think that, um, generally speaking, the more that the culture of wokeness and the culture of social authoritarianism and the culture of censorship grows and grows, the worse the problem of um, public weakness will become mm -hmm. because we will not have any pressure at all to think for ourselves or to, to, to decide for ourselves. Yeah. So I think these two things go in hand in hand, wanting a more resilient, um, satisfying, confident 
public life in which people are confident and more willing to engage with each other, more willing to talk, more willing to debate, more willing to uh, argue. If you want that, then you have to carry on challenging all the expressions of anti-human sentiment that we see in contemporary society. So I think it's it's a really difficult task challenging this culture of weakness, but I think it can be done. Yeah. Finally, for you, uh, final question for you, Brendan, what do you hope readers will take away from your book? Um, how do you envision this heretical mindset um, shaping society uh, moving forward? I think, I hope they enjoy it. I hope they find it funny and interesting that's the first thing i guess um but then i hope they take away from it just a sense that heresy is a good thing and one of the points i make is that virtually every freedom and right and comfort we enjoy is the gift of people who dare to be heretical and it's just important to remember that not to be nostalgic not to um obsess over the past too much but just to be aware that um Lots of the things we take for granted today in terms of what we know about the world or the fact that we think women should have equal rights to men or the fact that um, black people should not be segregated from white people or uh, the fact that the sun is actually uh, at the center of the solar system, not the earth. All these pieces of knowledge and information and progressive ideas that we hold very dear are all the products of people who were willing to go against the grain, all of them, every single one of them. And um, George Bernard Shaw made this point. He said, all great truths begin as blasphemies. And it's just worth reminding ourselves of that all the time. Um, we're, we're called blasphemers now if we say that men are men and women are women, or if we say that um, the vote for Brexit was a positive vote, which should be seen through to its very end, or if we say that Net zero is a problematic ideology which will impact harshly on working class communities in particular. If you say any of these things now, you will be called a climate change denier. You will be called a transphobe. You will be called a racist. You will be called a, basically a blasphemer. But I think even in the face of all that, it's important to carry on because all great truths begin as blasphemies. And we have to accept the category and the position of a heretic in order to expand freedom more broadly over the coming years. So I hope people take the message that bravery has a lot to recommend it. Uh, courage is an incredibly important virtue and those who can be courageous should be in order that we might challenge the irrationalism and the unfreedom that we are sadly living through at the moment. Hmm. Well, um, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. I urge you all to get a copy of Brendan O'Neill's latest book. I think it's, it isn't just a crit critique, it's a call to action, inviting us all to become heretics uh, in an age of conformity. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me, Brendan, and I really hope to have you back here again soon. Thank you so much.